all, everywhere you turn these days, it feels like there's March Madness, right? I mean, so those of you who love basketball, you're like, yes! Those of you who hate basketball, you're like, really? Everywhere I turn, I just see March Madness. But let me help you see as a coach something behind the scenes. There's not just the madness of, of playing the games and how they end, the overtime and all these upsets and everything. Behind the scenes, because you, the tournament, the way it's designed, you don't know the next team you're playing until sometimes only two days before the game. And so these assistant coaches and these scouts, they've got to uh, scout the team and prepare. It's prep time, baby. they got to prepare their team for this game in order to advance in the tournament. And that's talk about madness. These guys don't sleep. They're, it's all up to them to get their team ready to prep their team for this big game. So there's a whole nother level of madness behind the scene than what you see in the games, as crazy as they are. But springtime is not just March madness because of basketball. There's other kinds of things happening. A lot of students are taking their SATs or prepping for their SATs or maybe taking it again or the ACT. In fact, I found this guide about, you know, when to start studying and how, when you should take this test. It's called the prep timeline, prep time, just like our series. And then I was like, oh my gosh, they actually have a, a, a group of people called prep gurus who are all about prep time. They're so focused on getting people ready. And I thought to myself, there's a prep guru in the New Testament. Anybody know his name? John the Baptist, right? He's the prep guru. Now, no one ever calls him that, so this is first time. But if you've watched the Chosen TV show, this is the John character. He was the prep guru, the, the guy that prepared the way. Remember, he says, I'm a voice. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare, prepare the way for Jesus. So that's, that's John's ministry is prepping people for the ministry of Jesus, preparing people for the teaching of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus. And, um, you know, there's a sense in which those of you who are followers of Jesus, and I don't know how many of you are. I know some of you are. But I also know and hope that there's some people here who, who are not yet followers of Jesus. You're just checking it out, kicking the tires. But if you are a follower of Jesus, in a way, you're kind of like John the Baptist. Now, you may not have the beard, you know, in the movie, in, this movie, in the show, The Chosen, they call him Creepy John. I, I love that. It's a great name. But you may not have the wild eyes and, and you may not know that John ate locusts and wore crazy clothes. I'm not talking about that. The idea is that you're prepping the way for Jesus. You're prepping people to, to meet Jesus. And there's a day coming where the path of Jesus and the path of your friend will intersect. And your job is to prepare your neighbor. You're a John the Baptist. Your job is to prepare, prepare that, those people at work. Your job is to prepare your kids to prepare the way of the Lord. So in a real sense, you guys and I, we're all like John the Baptist. And I, I want to talk about that today in the last story. Today is our last sermon in the prep time series on John the Baptist. So next week is the last sermon in the series, but we'll be talking about Jesus then. Today is the last story about John the Baptist. We, see, we all see his name mentioned here and there as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke. Whoops, I was supposed to advertise that. Um, that's the brochure for the Greece trip. We'll see John's name here and there, but this is the last story. And it's our last chance to look at this fascinating guy. And I want to learn some lessons about our own life as we watch the life of John the Baptist. So turn with me to Luke chapter 3. And notice I'm going to be reading and preaching today out of the New Living Translation. So uh, if you brought your physical Bible and it's not the New Living Translation, then pull out your phone because a lot of you've got you Bible on your phone, right? Let's all stand to our feet. <laughs> there's, a, there's an app called You Bible that you can get. It's free. It's incredible. And there's all these translations. Um, so you can check that out. But I'm reading out of the New Living Translation today. And um, here we go. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. This is the nation of Israel. Fever pitch waiting for the Messiah to come. And they were eager to know whether John the Baptist might be that Messiah. And John goes, no. 
he answers their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, yep, but someone is coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He, when he comes, will baptize you, check out this phrase, with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's a crazy verse. What does that mean? He is ready. That's Jesus, the one that's coming. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat, he's speaking symbolically, with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. And John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. John the Baptist also publicly rebuked Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other evil things he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. Okay, you may be seated. Again, our last picture of John the Baptist and his prep time. And notice these people think, maybe you're the guy we've been waiting for, and John doesn't waste any time. He's like, oh, no, no. There's someone is coming. And in a sense, this is a, way, a great way to describe John's whole life. He, he's, he's telling someone about the someone, the someone who is coming, who, and he's coming soon, who is greater than I. I circled that phrase, greater than I, because this is like a theme of John's life. As I prepare the way for Jesus, I want you to know that this Jesus, this Messiah, he is so much greater than I. You guys are all excited about my preaching. You're coming out to get baptized. Everybody's coming out. There's thousands of people come out to see John preach and baptize and hear what he had to say. And John's like, man, I'm nothing compared to the one that's coming. He is greater than I. And that phrase that I circled shows up in every gospel. I put it up here on the screen for you. Matthew, someone is coming soon who's greater than I. Mark, exact same words. Luke, but we're reading, same words. And John, the, now this is not John the Baptist. This is John the disciple who wrote the gospel of John. He doesn't say this exactly, but he, he does talk about this same idea that Jesus must become greater and John the Baptist says, I must become less. So this whole greater than thing going on. I don't know, have you, have you guys seen this art, this piece of artwork? Anybody seen this? Uh, there's a couple guys in Hawaii, I don't know, a couple decades ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, who were reading in John 3 this language of he is greater than I, and they, they wanted to put something on their phone just to remind them of this. And so they were messing around with this capital H, capital E, and then the, the, the greater than sign, and then the small I. Every time I typed that into my computer, it, it, it corrected it, made it a capital I. And it's like my, 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 my computer is kind of like the devil. He's always trying to get me to, to think of myself first, you know. So, it's, you know, yeah, right. So, so it's a small I. Jesus is greater than I. And they, they put that on their phone like a, just a reminder. And then someone said, that's cool. You should put that on a T-shirt. They put it on a T-shirt. They were living in Hawaii. And all of a sudden, it just blew up. And everybody wanted this. Even though they didn't know what it meant, they wanted it on their shirt, their hat, their sunglasses, their towels, their, their surfboards. And so, like, you go to Hawaii, and it's like everybody's got this, this piece of artwork, and it's starting to work its way into America, and you see it on T-shirts and things like that. But I'm going to preach a sermon today about John the Baptist living a he is greater than I kind of life and inviting us to also prepare the way for Jesus by living this he is greater than I kind of life. Now, those of you who are in Avon Lake, you've seen this because this is the forearm of the worship leader at Avon Lake, Gabe Sigmund, shout out to Gabe. And so Gabe plays guitar, you know, his left hand has the chords. And so every time he's jamming and he's a great guitar player, a great worship leader, he looks down and there's a reminder, he is greater than I. And that's cool because sometimes we like to take worship leaders or other people on the platform and put them on a pedestal and it's easy to kind of get heady and Gabe's got that reminder, he's greater than I. As I'm leading worship and people are singing and he's greater than I. Isn't that cool? So some of you may want to get that tat. Of course, there's the cross, but um, uh, it's up to you. But it's kind of a cool way just to remind yourself, Jesus, 
is greater than me. And my life should reveal that. So if you and I were to live a he is greater than I kind of life, what might that look like? And this is what I want to talk about today because John the Baptist is like a model for us. When you live this kind of he is greater than I kind of life, there are several characteristics that show up in your life. And so you can kind of measure yourself today. Ask yourself, are the things in the life of John the Baptist about a person who lives a he is greater than I kind of life, are these things true in my life? You can just kind of test yourself as we go. So this verse that we pulled from, that you know, they're asking, are you the Messiah? You know, are you the one? And John goes, no, but this someone coming, is, this is a good picture of what John does over and over again. They want to know about John, and he wants to tell them about Jesus. They want to know, are you the guy? And he goes, no, I want to point to Jesus. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to point the way to Jesus. And then he didn't spend any time talking about himself. It's all just Jesus. You can see in the Gospel of John a great version of this. Um, in John chapter 1, verse 29, um, John is speak, John the Baptist is, is just, this is the John the disciple who wrote about John the Baptist, okay? John the disciple writing about John the Baptist, and he sees Jesus coming toward him when he's baptizing. And you can almost kind of imagine easily, right, the, the physical gesture when he says, look, he's pointing, look, there's the Lamb of God. There's the one who's going to sacrifice his life to pay for the sins of the world. That's your sins and mine. There he is, and you can just see the pointing, right? This is what John does with his words, with his life, with his hand, his finger. He's, he's pointing the way to Jesus. Now, this is especially hard because the, our verse that we started with, verse 15, says everybody else is all excited about John the Baptist. The best guess is that there are thousands of people coming out. You know, as one verse said, you know, the whole, whole city was coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River out in the wilderness. So all these masses of people flocking out to him, it would be easy to go, whoa, <laughs> I'm all that. You know, these, these people are coming to hear me. But no, you don't see any of that in John. John was, it's, it's actually, it's kind of hard for us to imagine how popular John was. Um, you know, the, the very best chance, best thing I can do to try to somehow catch the fever is to take you back 20 years ago when this high school kid named LeBron James, you just, you know, everybody knew about him as a high school player. People were saying he's the chosen one. He has a tat on his back that says the chosen one. And they were, you know, and everybody in Cleveland, you remember these days, we were like salivating because we're like, we can, we're so bad, we're going to be able to get him as the first pick in the draft. And they're like, oh, he's going to take us to the promised land, all this messianic language. It's so blasphemous. It's so bad. But that fever pitch around Cleveland 20 years ago that he could take us into the championship, take that and multiply it, you know, for the whole nation is buzzing about John the Baptist. Is he the Messiah? Because Messiah is going to kick the Romans out. It's going to restore Israel to prominence. This is the best days of their life. Is he the one? Is he the one? So people were going out to hear him. All this buzz, all this excitement, it would be so easy for John to get a tattoo that goes, the chosen one, or something on his arm about, I am, yeah, well, you know, something. But John keeps pointing people to Jesus. He keeps pointing people to Jesus, even though they're pointing to him. He's probably the most successful, you might could use that word, most successful person at this point in his life in the whole nation of Israel. And whenever you experience a level of success, watch out for what I call the seduction of success. And maybe it's not thousands of people coming to hear you speak. Maybe it's just that your startup business that you started is killing it. And everyone's like, man, what's your secret? How, how are you doing this? Or, or maybe you're, um, you're, you're doing really, really well in school. And everybody's like, wow, you're, you're the high school quarterback. Or you know, you're, you're somebody everybody's looking up to. See, success comes in all different kinds of ways. And let's just be honest. If you're here today, you are wildly successful compared to the rest of the world. But see, success is one of those things where 
I can always find somebody who's more successful than me. So I look at them and go, well, they've got this, they've got that, and I don't have that. So therefore, by that measurement, I'm not successful. Let me just ask you three questions. Do you know where you're going to be sleeping tonight? Do you have a bed? Do you you know where your next meal's coming from? Or are you going to leave here today and scrounge around and hope, hope you can put some food together because you're not sure, haven't eaten for several days, haven't slept in your, in your own bed for several days. And so do you have a place to sleep? Do you have a place to eat? Do you, do you have a job? Do you have a car? Now, maybe not all of you have a car, but most of you do. These are all things that we just take for granted. Of course I have a car. I've got a job. Of course I have a job. I've got to pay the bills. Of course I've, I have a place to sleep. Of course I have food. You do understand that, that millions, I'm not exaggerating at all, millions of people do not have a place to sleep, a bed, their own bed, a house or an apartment. I have a car. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. Just living in America is successful. But I know how this works, so we think, you know, I'm not as successful as somebody else. But here's what happens when any level of success comes in your business, in your pocketbook, in your investment portfolio, when you think of getting a little bit of margin, there's a seduction about the attention or about the, the wallet or about the fat investment portfolio. There's a, there's seduction, a seduction about that that, begin, that you begin to think, yeah, I got this wired. I am all that. And, and I've, I've got this taken care of. And we, and when I say we, I mean followers of Jesus. So I'm, I know that not everybody here is a follower of Jesus. I get that. But a lot of you are. A lot of you really love Jesus. And there's a seduction that can happen in our lives to seduce us away from loving Jesus, following Jesus, into trusting myself, my pocketbook, my success, reading my own clippings, thinking I am something that I'm really not. Just be careful. John models for us that although he was experiencing wild success, it wasn't... (laughs) It didn't detract from his pointing people to Jesus. There was a purity because he kept his life focused. This is the antidote to the seduction of success is keep focusing on Jesus. Keep coming to church and singing songs that worship Jesus. There's no danger that you're going to come to church and we're going to sing a song that's about worshiping you or somebody else. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to worship God. So come to church. Hear the preaching of the word. Get in your Bible every day. Be a person that's focused on Jesus and ask yourself when you read the Bible, how can I put this into practice? When you're reading the Gospels, can, can I do what Jesus did? How do I do that? It's a, it's a Jesus-focused life, including talk about Jesus. <laughs> when I say this, some people are like, oh, well, I'm not allowed to do that at my school or at my church or, or not at my church. Whoa, that's bad news. My job. So my job is at church, so that's how I got confused in my little snapses there. Um, I can't talk about him. Okay, we'll find other places to talk about Jesus. Because the, the fact of the matter is that while probably no one here would say out loud with their words, I'm greater than Jesus, you wouldn't say that. The fact of the matter is, is many of us, if not most of us, Live our lives in such a way, but that, that, that's what it looks like. That the way you live is screaming, I'm more, I'm greater than Jesus. So let's learn from John the Baptist, whether we're doing well or not, let's live a Jesus-focused life. Let's talk about Jesus. In fact, I've got a great opportunity for you to do that right now. Uh, in two weeks, who knows what's happening in two weeks? Anybody? Okay, Easter. So... Uh, I'm going to invite you to take out your phone right now. And don't give me that look like, well, I don't have my phone on. Yeah, you do. I, I, I get it. So, so th- I'm giving you a permission here. Take your phone out and text your friend. I've asked you before and before not to do that. You know, use your phone to look on a sermon, look, you know, look uh, for a scripture, but don't text. So now I'm asking you to text. And text a friend, not, not Jerry, unless you have a friend named Jerry. And just say, hey, I'm sitting in church right now. Um, literally, I'm inviting you, get your phone out. Do this right now. Is there somebody at your job, is there somebody in your neighborhood that you could text right now? You're still not getting your phones out. At least put your head down like you're faking it, okay? 
I'm looking for my phone, Jim. And it, is there someone you could text right now? And, and I put these words up here because, believe it or not, I, I'm not good at this kind of stuff. And so if I, if I just asked you, text a friend right now and invite him to Easter, some of you would be like, I don't know how to, I don't, what do I, I want to say it right. I don't know how to do that. So you can literally use these words, just don't use Jerry. You can literally use these words, and I'm going to wait for you to do that. So just go ahead. <laughs> Wasn't that fun? You got to text in church. Okay, now when you're done with that, let's, let's move on. But this is just a simple way that you can talk about Jesus, invite people to a Sunday where in our culture today, there's still enough people who know what Easter is, though that number is shrinking. A lot of people think it's about Easter bunnies. There's still enough people in our country that know enough about Easter that they know it has something to do with church and it has something to do with Jesus. Maybe it's that's when Jesus becomes a bunny. I'm not sure how the story goes. Was Jesus a bunny first? Then he be, I don't know, but I know Easter is something about Jesus and bunnies and church. So next in two weeks on Easter Sunday, I'm not going to talk about bunnies, but I am going to talk about Jesus. And I, I invite you, invite your friends. Amen? Someone say yes. Invite your friends. Don't let another Easter go by where you're sitting in one of our services and thinking, oh man, I, should, I wish I would have invited Jerry, you know. Ah, so do that now. Take one of the invite cards that we've given you and, and invite one of your friends or two or three or 10 of your friends because on Easter Sunday, we're gonna talk about Jesus. What is the resurrection? How did it happen? What difference does it make? And it is the best news that's ever been heard your friend needs to hear it. Someone shake their head like, yeah, we need to hear that. Okay, so let's move on. Um, so this phrase in verse 16, where John is pointing to Jesus and explaining when he comes, yeah, I baptize with water, but he's gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's, that's a wild phrase, but Jesus in the book of Acts, now let me just get our chronology here. In Luke 3, 16, Jesus hasn't started preaching yet. No one's, no, hardly, hardly anyone's heard of him. John is preparing the way for him. But down in Acts, Jesus has lived, he's taught, he's died, he's been resurrected, and now he's about to ascend into heaven, and he turns to his disciples, and he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus speaking to his disciples, John baptized with water, he quotes almost the exact same phrase, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Whoa, what does that mean? And you, you can almost kind of sense like, Whoo, what, what is that? So when Jesus says this, and when John says this three years earlier, both Jesus and John are referring to something that was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament by Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Joel, maybe the most famous, where the Old Testament prophet says, that God says, I will pour out my spirit. Maybe a little baptism language, maybe, I don't know, but what does that mean, pour out my spirit? On all people, even on my servants, both men and women. Ooh, cool. I repeats the phrase, I will pour out my spirit. And so, when this happens in the life of the disciples, which we're going to talk about in a second, they welcome the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're welcoming the Holy Spirit being poured out upon his people. And friends, this is the secret to living the Christian life. So you don't become a Christian by trying hard. You don't become a Christian by, by being a moral person or being a nice person. You become a Christian by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ saying, forgive me of my sin, and God fills you, God baptizes you with his Holy Spirit, and now you have the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He's the one that washes away your sin. He's the one that convicted you of your sin in the first place. He's the one that regenerates your heart, causes you to be born again, and everything changes. And, but if you try to just be a good person, 
go to church, not, you've not surrendered your life, you will not be filled with the Spirit. You will not be baptized with the Spirit. You'll just be a person who's trying to be a good person and you'll fail and fail and fail because we were never meant to be able to live the Christian life in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back to how this all happens. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, and I'm, tr- I'm going to jump all over the scripture today, is preaching a sermon, and he refers to Jesus by saying that after he died and after he was raised from the dead, and then after he ascended into heaven, he was exalted to the right hand of God, and he, that is Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you see in here. So Jesus has poured out, that's our phrase here, what? The promised Holy Spirit that Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, Joel, and, and other, and Jeremiah, and other prophets prophesied about. And this promise, Holy Spirit, that people have been waiting for and with, with bated breath, they, they don't understand how it's going to work, but somehow in the Messianic age, when everything is made right, when we kick Rome out and Israel is on top again, when, when things were back into the golden age, don't know what that means, but this is what they're thinking, it's going to be something about the Holy Spirit, it's going to be something about the Messiah, I don't know how this all works, they said, but this language got them excited, and they're like, what is God doing right now? God is on the move. So, in, in Acts chapter 1, I told you I was going to jump around. Jesus is, is just, again, just before he's ascended into heaven, he's still promising, Acts 1.5 and now Acts 1.8, when the Spirit comes, you will receive power. This, this promise, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that language in Acts 1.5 that we looked at down here and here in 1.8 fits with that passage in Luke 3 about this idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit and baptized with fire and all that that means. Now, notice Acts 1 is followed by Acts 2, and Acts 2 is where the promise gets fulfilled. So I'm going to move now to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, all these people are gathered together, and the disciples says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. John and Jesus had prophesied, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. So these, it's like, I don't know whether a big thing of flame came down from heaven and then divided just before it got on their heads or each person got a shot of fire, but somehow, somehow it's like there's, it looks like these fire, you know, burning on the top of people's heads and it's the presence. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit, just what was prophesied. It separated and came to rest on each one of them and all of them Let's start with this phrase. Instead of fire, let's start with this phrase. We're all filled with the Holy Spirit. So whatever else is happening with these tongues of fire, this is the moment when the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the inauguration of the church. This is the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Holy Spirit comes with all these signs and wonders. This is a big deal. This is, one of, this is huge. And so whenever God does something big, there's always this, all these kind of signs and wonders that are happening. So with the coming of the Spirit, the disciples now are receiving the promise that Jesus made, the promise that John the Baptist made, the promise that the prophets made. And it's all coming to, to, uh, to a head in this moment where the Spirit you know, takes like the form of fire and falls upon these people. Now, remember, when Jesus had promised, he said, when the Spirit comes on, you will be my, you will have power to witness. So you can fill out the blank up here now that you welcome the Holy Spirit poured out by Jesus and you receive the filling of the Spirit. And so those who are trying to live a he is greater than I kind of life are living in the power of the Spirit. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. You're not trying to live a good life. You're not trying to do, be a religious moralist. You're, you're living a spirit-filled life. And the Holy Spirit's always trying to point to Jesus, to oh, he is greater than I kind of life. And that is, empowers you to text your friend, invite him to Easter. It empowers you to give them a card and invite him to Easter. It empowers you to tell them your story about how Jesus changed your life. The Holy Spirit is the power source that enables us to witness. But we also saw the Holy Spirit did not just fill them, but the, again, this idea of resting, this idea of fire. What? 
is the symbolism of the presence of the Holy Spirit and fire. It's just a fascinating phrase. Well, now you can put down on your notes here this idea of the fire of the Holy Spirit. If you, if you read throughout the Bible, you see that the word fire is a symbol for two or three great things. Um, it's often a symbol of God's presence. So when Moses went up to Mount Sinai with Charlton Heston, it says the, the fire of God was falling. It was, the, the mountain was on fire. The fire is a picture of the presence of God. Second big picture is that the fire is a picture of, symbol, of, of purification. It's a symbol and a picture of, of purifying. So whether that's you're purifying gold or silver or purifying a field, you know, the fire is a purifying um, presence. So in the book of Malachi, the Old Testament book of Malachi, talks about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Spirit as a refiner's fire. So it's not destroying, it's refining, it's purifying. And then the third big picture is the fire of judgment. So let's just keep those three pictures in mind because every time we see fire, we have to ask ourselves, is this the presence of God? Or is this the presence of God purifying? Is this the presence of God um, uh, sanctifying uh, judging what, what, what's happening with this fire. And I'll explain how this all works. But at this point, just write down that the fire of the Spirit purifies our hearts because, I'm not going to put this on the screen, but in Acts 15, verses 8 and 9, Peter says that the Holy Spirit filled these people and purified their hearts by faith. That's where that language came from. Purifies our hearts. Now, if you've got your Bible open in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, whoop, I got the wrong passage there. Um, in Luke 3, he, he uses this language that I pointed out of this um, separating the, ch the chaff from the wheat with a winnowing fork. This, this, he is ready. Jesus is ready to do this. And this language here is a language that is a language of judgment. So write down in your notes that the, the, what Jesus is going to do and what John is describing is a picture of judgment. Now, now, hold on. Let me explain what this is all about. Just right, right now, I can just kind of leave this blank and talk about another work of the Spirit that judges. In particular here, it's a picture of judging our motives. So um, there's, there's all kinds of different you know, judgment. The, the two biggest ones are the ongoing judgment of the Holy Spirit, who is judging your hearts right now, even as, we're, as I'm preaching. He's judging my hearts as I'm preaching. This is, um, and by the way, don't be freaked out by the word judge here. Uh, I know people do. You're like, we're not supposed to judge. Don't judge me, bro. But just, just listen. We all judge every day, all day. What do I mean by that? You've been built by God, made by God, to be able to judge how fast a car is coming. Should I walk out in front of that car? It's based upon my judgment. You, you, you judge, you know, the color of the light. You, you're judging and discerning all day long natural things and people. We judge people. This is not a bad thing right now. We judge people all the time. When someone's coming up, we judge. Are they angry? Hmm, their fist is balled up. This could be a problem. You know, we're making judgments about that person, their facial expressions. We're making judgments about the tone of people's voice. This is what we do. So let's stop with the all judging is bad. We, we all do it. We all do it all the time. What we mean when we say judging is bad is when you judge without enough information, when you prejudge prejudice, when you judge without really knowing what's going on, that's what we mean when we say, don't judge. So now that we all understand that everybody judges all the time, that it's how we function in life, we now we're able to see how the Holy Spirit is judging us. He's, he's weighing, he's measuring, he's distinguishing, he's discerning the thoughts and motives of our heart. There's this ongoing kind of judgment that's happening as I speak right now. Now, when I talk about this judging of our motives and judging of our hearts, it reminds me, well, I'll just put it up on the screen. It reminds me of this passage from Hebrews 4, where some of you are familiar with, where it says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, there's our word, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's the motives. 
The Spirit, one of the things that He does, not just purifies, not just empower us, but He judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, or the motives of our heart. And notice how the writer Hebrew says this is the Word of God that the Spirit's using. The Spirit uses the Word of God to judge us. So when you're hearing a sermon preached, when you're reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit's using that to measure your heart, to measure your attitudes, to, to judge you, and what, again, to discern accurately what's happening in your heart and in your mind. This is, this is a beautiful picture of what the Spirit does because when He judges that and He always judges accurately, now we know where we stand. There's no confusion. There's clarity. But watch something that some of you maybe not have noticed before. This Word of God language, when we were preaching through the book of Ephesians, we saw Paul say that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So that's what was happening in Hebrews 4. The sword of the Spirit was judging people's hearts, their attitudes, their motives. So that's why we said this is another work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what's happening in our passage in Luke 3, is that John says that when Jesus comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and that fire will purify you, that fire will be the presence of God, and that fire will judge you both in the ongoing way that you live to expose what's really happening in your life. So you have clarity. He speaks the truth. I don't know what's happening in your hearts right now, but God does. You can't hide anything from God. He judges perfectly and accurately. He's doing that all the time just to give you clarity. But there's also this, we talked about this final judgment. So this scripture is a picture of cleansing. It's a picture of a harvest. It's a picture of judgment now and later, what we call the final judgment. And so when John uses this kind of language, do you see how that language is an act of mercy? John knows fire is coming, and so he says, I'm here to warn you. Jesus knows fire is coming, so he sends the Holy Spirit to warn us to convict us so that we can surrender our lives. And when we, when we, when we talk like that, some people are like, man, I just still don't like that judgment. I don't, I don't like that warning. Okay, let me try this one on for size. This is an old illustration, but it works all the time. It's great. You're walking down the street or you get a, a, something on your phone that you live in California and fire is coming. This, this is not made up. This is actually happens all the time, every year it seems. Fire is sweeping through a neighborhood. It's jumped the tracks. It's, it's jumped the fire line. It's jumped a river, and it's moved into your neighborhood. Is it a loving thing for you to do to ignore your neighbor who's in their house comfortable, listening to their music, and is not paying attention? They have no idea if fire's coming. Is that loving? Is that, is that being kind? No, that's one of the most unloving things you could do. Figure it out for yourself. It's loving to say, fire's coming. And I'm here to warn you. I'm knocking on your door. I'm saying, don't ignore this message. This is what John is doing in that passage in 317. He says that Jesus is coming and he will send the Holy Spirit to baptize us, to convict us, to empower us, to warn us, to purify our hearts and our motives and to remind us of fire is coming, judgments and coming. It's one of the most loving things he could do. Now, I could stop there, but let's finish the passage by going to this next verse, which says, then John used many such warnings. So that wasn't the only time. As he, this word here is really the word preached, as he declared, announced, preached the good news. It's like the good news is fire is coming. No, the good news is the warning that fire is coming. The good news is that actually bigger than fire is the person of Jesus Christ because if you want to live a, a he is a greater than I kind of life, then you will be preaching, you'll be sharing, you'll be announcing the good news of Jesus because that's what John did, that's what, that's what the disciples did. This is, the, this is a part of the life of what it looks like to live a he is greater than I kind of life. Not just say he is greater, but actually live. So test yourself. Are you sharing the good news of Jesus? And I don't mean just the text that we talked about. 
the people around you know the good news of Jesus. You say, well, what exactly do you mean by the good news of Jesus? Well, I could preach a whole sermon or a series on that. Let me use these words to summarize because this is being talked about before Jesus has even started preaching. So the definition I'm going to give you or the summary I'm going to give you of the good news works before Jesus started his ministry and it works as a summary looking back. It's real simple. It's telling people who Jesus is, what Jesus has says, and what Jesus did. Those three simple phrases are easily, easy to remember, but each one of them are, are packed with all kinds of information. Who is Jesus? Well, the good news tells us the truth about him, that he's the way, the truth, and life, that he's God who's become man. Any version of the good news that's not centered on Jesus, who he is, is not good news. It's all about who Jesus is. Is he just a good man or is he God? Is he all God, but he's just borrowing a body? No, he's fully man. How can he be fully God and fully man? Because only his death on the cross pays the penalty for our sin. He's not just a good man. He's not just a God borrowing a body. He is fully God, fully man. That's who Jesus is. That starts off the gospel. What did Jesus say? That's why we're preaching to the gospel of Luke. That's why I, I keep asking us, read the gospels, because we find out what Jesus said, and then we start doing it. When we look at what did Jesus do in, he, in his teaching, in his living, in the way he treated people, and then what did he do on the cross? He died for our sins, and God raised him from the dead. All these things capture what is the good news of Jesus. And if you tell people who Jesus is, what he said, and what he did, you're good. <laughs> Sharing the gospel is not pulling out some track that has four spiritual laws and giving it to them and go, okay, I've done my job. No, sharing the good news is telling them about Jesus. Jesus is the good news, amen? And so this is what we see John the Baptist doing. He's pointing to Jesus. He's inviting people and welcoming people to, to, to welcome the Holy Spirit. And he's sharing the good news of who Jesus is. Now there's one more thing from this text I want you to see. And it's these last verses, verses 19 and 20. And in a sense, I, I, I do recognize that this will be a good place to stop, but Luke doesn't stop here. Luke gives us a summary. It's not chronological, it, but it's a summary picture of John the Baptist's life. He also publicly rebuked Herod, and he's going to pay for it. The ruler of Galilee, you guys read that. He married, he, in the, all these evil things that he did. So Herod put John in prison, and many of you know that's where John died. We don't know how long he was in prison. We know Roman prisons were horrible, brutal, suffering places. But it wasn't just horrible, brutal suffering. That's where John got his head cut off. That's where he, that's where he died a death. So we got to add this to when you live a he is greater than I kind of life, Again, I'm not saying when you say that. I'm not saying when you go to church. I'm saying when you live a he is greater than I kind of life, you've got to be ready to suffer for Jesus. And I see all of you, all of you are like, you're waiting for me to say, who wants to suffer for Jesus? Because you want to shoot your hand up. I want to suffer. I want to suffer. No, 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 you're not. Nobody wants to suffer. Let's just be clear. I don't want to suffer but I'm ready to suffer for Jesus. And this brings up a really good question. For those of you who are considering following Jesus, for those of you who are just kind of marking time, you're just going to church, and today, maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, and you're considering selling out to Jesus, way to go. Be a disciple of Jesus. Surrender everything to Jesus. You're, you're thinking about taking this, he is greater than I, seriously. You come to this question, and you say to yourself, <laughs> Why would I do that? I like the other stuff. Why would I sign up? Why would I surrender my life to Jesus Christ? Why would I do that? If you're telling me I need to be ready to suffer for that decision, isn't it better to look like I'm living that kind of life but just kind of play it cool? <laughs> Who wants to suffer? And I think it's a really appropriate question to ask. It may be the most important question you've asked in a long time. Why would anybody sign up for a life 
that may involve that you need to be ready to suffer? Let me let that question hang in the air and then give you the best answer I could possibly give. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Come on. Jesus is worthy. Some of you are like, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, he's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is God. He's our savior, our Lord. He's worthy. He died for you and for me. Why? Because of love. That's a worthy one that I'm willing to lay my life down. How about you? Do you just want to play it safe and therefore say, well, Jesus isn't that worthy? Or would you lay down your life for Jesus? Do you know if you would, you join millions of people who said, I'm willing, I'm ready. But I wonder in the United States of America in 2023, how many people there are today who would say, I'm willing. Well, I like to sing songs about Jesus is worthy, but is it worth it? Let me tell you from my own life, but much more so from the life of others that I've known, Jesus is worth it. You get to the end of your life and you realize, I've wasted my life. I thought I was about acquiring things. I thought I was about doing, having fun doing this and that. I got to the end of my life and I realized I wasted my life. When you get to the end of your life after serving Jesus wholeheartedly, you will say, it was worth it. Jesus is worth it because he is worthy. Not that I want to suffer, but I'm willing. Anybody here willing? Anybody here grasp what Paul the apostle said when he was in a Roman prison and says, for me? To live, I live for Jesus. I I literally live for Jesus. To die, now I get to see him face to face. I'm not afraid to die. I know that this world will eventually end or my life will eventually end and I will be ushered into eternity. This is true for every single one of us. And then we will see what you thought was greater in your life. We will see what really is true about your life and you will meet Jesus every one of you, and you will see how worthy he is. You will be captivated, and you will either say, I want to spend my life, my eternity with you, or you will walk away because you gave your life to something else in this one and only life on earth. You will see Jesus. Right now, we see through a glass darkly. We hear, we sing songs about how worthy he is. But friends, when you see him face to face, when you literally behold the glory of God, you will fall on your face and you will say, you are worthy. It will take over your life. It's my job as a preacher to say that day is coming and your Savior is worth it. He is worthy, amen? Now, I told you I wanted to talk you out of my life, but let me tell you even greater uh, a life of this man right here. This is a man I met 10 years ago. Don Denevic and I went on a trip to Vietnam. And, I, and I, 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 I'm sorry, I did not write this man's name down, but Jesus knows his name. This man's a pastor. When I met him, he told me about how he was arrested in Vietnam by the Vietnamese for preaching Jesus, for pointing people to Jesus. And he began to suffer. They put him in prison. They tortured him. I will not tell you the, the unbelievable torture that went on for 20 years years. They kept him alive so they could torture him. And as this man, he's a little guy. I'm six foot three. He, he may have been four foot 11. He's a tiny little guy. And as he's telling me these stories, it was like light was behind his face. His face was glowing. His eyes were dancing. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about suffering. And the look on his face blew my mind. I will never forget, Don, well, you, you'll never forget the look on his face, will you? It's just glowing because he says, I, it was my honor to suffer for Jesus. And I ask you, citizen of the United States of America, can you even imagine that in your life? And I want to challenge you to try to do so. I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom. I just see, I can see what's happening in our country. If we're not ready to suffer for Jesus, we may deny Jesus because that's the whole point of persecution and torture. And this man, 
He's glowing. I just stunned by his face, his eyes. And in that moment, again, I'm 6'3", he's maybe 4'11", I felt like a tiny little, I'm a giant physically, but he was the giant, the spiritual giant in our relationship. I felt so tiny compared to him because I thought to myself, that kind of faith, that kind of love for Jesus, I want to believe I have that kind of love and that kind of commitment to God, I pray I I do. But this man lived it. It wasn't about it might happen. And the face the eyes, the glow, the dancing, the privilege to suffer for Jesus blew my mind. I'm still talking about it 10 years later. And you begin to hear about people like the Apostle Paul and John and Peter and others who say, it is my honor to suffer for Jesus Christ. America Church needs to hear this. It's my honor to suffer for Jesus Oh, God, help us. Help us as we look at it and see what kind of a life it is to live. He is a greater than I kind of life that we would point to Jesus. We would welcome the Spirit's work in our life. We would share the good news. We would be ready to suffer for him. And our lives would magnify the Lord. Amen? That our lives, our testimony, everything about us would be making Jesus greater and greater, more and more famous in my life, in my world, that he must become greater. I must become less. I want to magnify with Jesus in my life. Anybody else would say that today? Maybe stand to your feet and all of our campus and say, oh, oh, may Christ be magnified in my life. Anybody want to join me and just say, I want my life to be a life that magnifies Jesus Christ, that honors him. And when the day comes, where I'm tempted to bow down to ours, when I'm tempted to, to give in, when suffering happens, no, 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 I will serve my Lord. I will stand for him because he stood for me. And my prayer for everyone in this room and all of our campuses is that our lives would be a he is greater than I kind of living and that Christ would be magnified, made bigger, made more clear in each one of our lives. Let me pray for you. Oh, God, John the Baptist was one of a kind, and yet John the Baptist models for us a level of discipleship and commitment that is fascinating. But beyond the fascination, Holy Spirit, would you work in everyone hearing my voice these incredible words? I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. I don't know that it's coming, but I'm willing. And the only reason is because Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. He's worth it all. John said, he is so great. I'm not even worthy to bow down and unloose the strap on his sandal. His, his magnitude, his holiness, his beauty is so beyond, so much greater than Anything I could ever be, I get it. He's God. I'm not. I bow. I worship. I surrender. He's worthy. I'm not. I live my life glorifying, magnifying Jesus Christ. For we pray in his holy name today. Amen.